Okay. Honesty check. Moment of truth. How many of you have either been arrested, stood before a judge, got caught doing you should, something you shouldn't do by law enforcement? Let me see. That's why I love our church. Second question, how many of you just lied and didn't put your hand up? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, how many of you have done it twice? My hand's up. Three times? There's my son raising his hand out there. Four times? Are we the only ones? Must run in the blood. Five times? Okay, what's the four-year-old doing with his hand up back there? Six times? Lots of times. Lots of times. It was a good thing that I came to know Christ. Who knows what might have happened if I hadn't. I was always in trouble. Always in trouble with the law. Always. And, uh, sorry, it's just who I was. Always in trouble with the law. There's a, uh, there's a story that a friend of mine tells of a dad, his friend, who uh, was looking out in the backyard and noticed his son was playing with a toy from the store. Kid is probably around 10. And he knew several things. Number one is he knew the kid didn't have any money to buy the toy. And he knew the mom wouldn't have done it. So he had a sneaking suspicion. He went out and said, where did you get the toy? Of course, you know, sin leads to more sin. So he lied. I bought it. Oh, where would you get the money? Well, it soon came out that he had shoplifted. This kid had. So he um, said, we're going to go back to the store. The kid didn't know, but he had called the store manager ahead of time, told him what happened, and said he got to the parking lot and said to the kid, uh, his son, you need to take it back in. Dad, will you go with me? No. You did this. You have to do it. So he went in. The son went in and uh, met with the store manager and got an appropriate chewing out. We don't do that quite so much anymore these days, but we should. You know, when I got in trouble several times with the law, the worst thing that they could say, the very worst thing they could say is, your dad's not going to be happy. And that's right. He wasn't. Because back then, that's what they did. I mentioned to some of the policemen, I was talking to them, the way we used to do it. And the policeman said, you know what the problem is today? We can't do that. I said, why not? He goes, there's no dad. Over 50% of the homes, there's no dads. And most of the kids that get in trouble don't have dads at home. And it's like, oh, what a sad thing. Because that's the worst thing I could imagine. I would rather arrest me and throw me in jail than tell my dad. So the kid went in, got chewed out by the store manager, came out very humbled, climbed into the car, and the dad asked him how it went. And he told him, and he said, well, I have a, I have a surprise for you. And he reached behind the seat and pulled out the same toy. While he was getting chewed out, he went and paid for one. And the son was like, what's that about? And the dad said, you deserve punishment, but I'm going to give you a gift instead. And that's the way he began to teach 
this principle right here. You see, Romans chapter 8 is a very significant chapter. It's, uh, we're in a series where we're talking about the role of the Holy Spirit. We started all earlier in the year, all the beginning of the year, we talked about what holiness is. And for the summer, we're talking about what role does the Holy Spirit play in helping us on this journey? And so we titled the, the series, Life Outside the Cage. And we've used the metaphor of a cage, that uh, all of us are in a cage. And I use the example of if you've been to a circus, um, back when we had lots of circuses, and you go into the back part and you can see the animals in the cages, well, they're pretty happy. They're taken care of, but it's not what God created them for. And, and what do you do when, you, when the circuses started shutting down? You can't simply open the door and let these animals out. Where do they go? They wouldn't survive. And that's, to me, a picture of what it's like turning to Christ is that we are beginning to step outside of a cage into a life we were created to live, but we have no idea how to do it. We have no idea how to do it. So up until this week, all of our passages have been out of John, and we looked at Jesus and his teachings about the coming spirit. Well, today we're going to now jump post-resurrection from here on out and look at some of these stories with Paul looking back in Romans 8 on what actually happened. What happened? When we stepped out of the cage, the Holy Spirit was there. Jesus said, I'm not going to leave you alone because we have no idea. Just like an animal, for those of you that have pets, you turn your pet loose, they wouldn't know how to survive. Same picture. They let the animals out of the cage, they have no idea how to survive. Without the Spirit, we would have no idea how to survive. So Romans 8 begins with a very important phrase, therefore. Therefore. You see, this passage here, uh, this is a very important uh, word in this particular book in Romans. In this passage, when it starts with therefore, it's introducing something brand new. Therefore, something brand new has happened. If we go back to chapter 7, verse 5, this is what he says. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us so that we bore fruit to death. Verse 6, the very next verse. But now, but now, something new. By dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law. That's all of Romans 6. You've been set free. We have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I think these two verses lay out redemptive history. I think they also explain the next two chapters of Romans. Verse 5, the sinful passions, is all of the rest of Romans 7. The rest of Romans 7, I is used 30 times. That's that famous passage, what I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. You know, I'm struggling all the time. Okay, then verse 6, in that, but now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law. This explains chapter 8. But now, therefore, therefore there is now no condemnation. It's perhaps the most beautiful passage in the Bible. 
You see this word condemnation is a judicial term. It's what you hear when you stand before a judge. You're guilty. And the sentence is jail. Or maybe parole. Maybe public service. Whatever it is. But you're not getting away scot-free. You're going to pay for what you did. That's what this word is. This has the idea of punishment. Standing before the judge and you've been found guilty. Well, this is not new to us. In fact, back in Romans 5, when he's talking about Adam and Christ, this is what he says. In verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people, because everyone sinned. I probably don't have to convince you of that, do I? All you have to do is have children, and you'll know that's true. I have one sitting right there. He's laughing. He gave me a run for my money. We all sinned, right? But then he goes on in verse 16. The gift of God cannot be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. There it is. You see, the judgment from that sin, our choice to sin, the judgment is condemnation. We stood before a judge and he said, you are guilty and here's the price, death. Then all of a sudden in verse chapter 8, he says, Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no punishment. What he just did, we're not going to read chapter 7, but he just moved from the destructiveness of sin. And it is very destructive. Some of you have managed to escape pretty lightly. But talk to those that are drug addicts. Talk to those who are alcoholics. And you will see. Talk to those who have had marriages that fail. And you will see sin is destructive. And so he's just moved from this experience of destruction to begin to contrast what this new life is like. Now remember, we just took a step out of the cage. And he's beginning to tell us what life is like. So picture this. We're, We're tentatively walking outside the cage. And the Holy Spirit's holding our hand. And he's guiding us every step of the way. First thing he says is, there's no punishment. It's okay. It's okay. When I was in Nepal in February, the pastors there, they they have a, a much different approach than we do culturally. And they were talking about how important it is to control sin. And I said, okay, how many of you have sinned in the past week? And none of their hands went up. And I said, Really? I already have lusted after a woman, and it's only been a week. And they all kind of had this slow giggle. I said, now, Jesus said that that's already adultery. How many of you have sinned in the past week? Well, now every hand goes up. Did God punish you? How many of you were punished by God? Not one hand went up. I said, how about in the last month, how many of you have sinned? Every hand goes up. How many of you have been punished by God? No hand went up. How about the last year? How many of you have sinned? Of course, every hand's up. How many of you have been punished by God? Do you believe it or not? There is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment, no punishment. Consequences, yes. We all bear the result of consequences but it's no longer being handed down as a judicial form of punishment. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? 
because, the very next verse, through Christ Jesus, the law of the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is the whole message of Romans 6. You have been set free over and over and over and over again. He says it. And baptism is a picture of that. You're no longer under the slave, under the slavery, under slavery to sin, that master called sin. You're no longer under them. You've been set free. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our own sin nature, the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering on our behalf. You see, we've said this several times. When you look at the Mosaic law, the law was not ambiguous, nor was it difficult. Pick any verse, any of the 613 commands, and they're all easy. They're easy to obey. That was never the problem. If you have mold on the wall, scrape it off. Okay. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Okay. What's difficult about those commands? None of them were difficult. That was never the problem. The problem is here. Here's the problem. The problem was not with the law. That's why Paul could say in the chapter before that the law is perfect, holy, righteous, good. is because it did its job. What it did was it exposed our own sinfulness. The problem wasn't the law. Don't ever think poorly of the Mosaic law. It was good. Its job was to expose our need because we simply couldn't obey it. Not because it was impossible. It wasn't impossible. Not because it was ambiguous. It was quite clear. It's because we were sinners. That's why. Well, he goes on. And so, the end of verse 3, he condemned sin. There's no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who got condemned? Sin, not us. When we turn to Jesus, that condemnation, standing before the judge, gets passed to sin. That's what gets condemned, not us. We are free. As he says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't use that freedom. In verse 13, he says, to indulge your own sinful natures. Don't do that. Why go backwards? Why would you want to do that? You've been given your freedom. The cage door has been opened. Are we going to step out? Are we going to step out into that freedom? He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement, this is one of the most fun passages for me. It's intriguing. A lot of controversy and discussion over this. In order that, this is why he condemned sin, the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. He didn't say so we could obey the law. He didn't say that. He says so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. What does that mean, the righteous requirement of the law? How did Jesus sum up the law? When asked, love God and love people. It was very simple. How did Paul sum up the law? He didn't even quote the first command. He says, just love people. Love one another. That's how he summed it up. We actually see that when we get over to verse uh, chapter 13. Chapter 13, he's now talking about 
governing, uh, submission to governing authorities and what it means to live as a believer outside the cage. This is what he says in verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except for the continuing debt to love one another. For the, whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. There it is. So why did he do this? So the righteous requirement is fulfilled in us by someone else. Who is that? Spirit. The Spirit of God just showed up. We took our first step outside of the cage. And now we have to learn what it means to love people. That's what it means. It doesn't come natural. In fact, many of us are going to challenge, we're going to be challenged and struggle with it greatly. But that's what it means. We start to learn. We begin that process. That's the beginning of verse 1. Therefore, something brand new has come. Something brand new. The punishment has been lifted, and we have been given the Spirit, and we can now learn. He goes on. Those who live, this has the idea of existing, this verb, we are, simply who we are now, because of Jesus. So those who live or exist within the realm of the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live or exist, if you will, within the realm of the Spirit have their minds set on new things. When you, when you turn to Christ and that door to the cage opens, your whole thinking now begins to change. And it's hard We've talked about that. We used the imagery at one point of your arm is asleep and all of a sudden you move it and it starts to wake up. The very first sensation you have is it's very uncomfortable. That's coming to life in Christ. So he was right when he said it'll be a challenge. He was telling us the truth. You know what I'm talking about. It is not easy. It's not easy. That's why we have the Holy Spirit. That's why the Holy Spirit is so critical. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life. He could have stopped there. You see, this, was, this dichotomy was found all throughout this ancient world. Death and life, darkness and light. Those metaphors existed everywhere. Although ancient philosophers used it. Death and life, okay? Um, name a philosopher and we can look them up if they have anything written and they're dealing with this metaphor but he modifies it he adds something that no other philosopher had added as far as we know in world history he says the mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and shalom peace no other ancient writer connected these ideas None. This is brand new. You see, shalom is what we were made for. That's what we are created for all along, to enjoy God's presence and to enjoy that peace in every place we look. Our jobs, our careers, our relationships. Can you imagine just for a moment not being driven by insecurities? Every one of you is. Everyone, I know I am. I wake up at night thinking about things. Just being honest, I want you to like me. I want you to like my teaching. I do. That's why I joke with you. If I have a bad sermon, just stare over there. And you're going to worship anyway. I'm human like you. 
Can you imagine waking up without those insecurities just for a moment? This is what we are created for. And Paul introduces a brand new idea in world history, I believe, here. The mind that is set on the spirit enjoys life and shalom. Does it happen like that? No, it doesn't. Because the first step out of the cage is hard. And the second step is hard. The third step is hard. I mentioned to you that when I was in Cambridge, some of the young PhD students asked me, are you as happy as you seem? Say, yeah, I I guess I am. I've been a Christian 42 years this year. And they said, we wish you could see the world through your eyes. I said, really? Is that what you want? Then you have to lose your wife at 25. That's what I did. Lost my first wife. You have to have your dad call you and say, I've been diagnosed in the final stages of cancer. I'm given one month to live. Hopped on a plane to go spend time with my dad before he died. You have to go to the doctor and find out you have bladder cancer. That happened to me. My church knows that. It's under control by his grace. You have to get fired by a few jobs along the way. You have to get told you're not important. Is that really what you want? And these young students said, no. You have to live life the way I see it. So they asked me, how did you do it? How did you do it at 25 to lose your first wife and at 31 to lose your dad? How did you do it? I said, I don't know. All I know is two things. Number one is I put one foot in front of the other. That's what life outside the cage is like. And now when I look back, I see the Holy Spirit. That's what I know. And now decades later, I don't quite have this attitude because I don't like testing God. Bring it. (laughs) I don't quite think that way, but I'm no longer, (laughs) yeah, that'd be stupid. (laughs) But I'm no longer afraid of what the Lord's going to do. Even that day when Nancy and I, three or four years ago, when, when the, unexpectedly the doctor said, you have bladder cancer, even when he told me that, I came home and like a good human cried. <laughs> Who wants bladder cancer? But then I thought, okay, God, as Peter said, you already know I love you, so I, we don't have to figure that one out anymore. So what are you doing? This is far bigger than me now. It's about my church. It's about my family. It's about my grandchildren. This is far bigger than me. What are we doing here? What's this going to happen? What's it going to look like? I'm okay with it. I thought about it and I said, Lord, you want to take me home? I'm ready to go. But as Paul says in Philippians, it's far better to remain. I have a church and children and grandchildren. So just do your thing. Just do your thing. He did. Here I am. Shalom. That's what we were created for. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot, cannot, cannot. Hear those words. Those who exist without Christ cannot please God. Don't be fooled. Life is an illusion. We live in the most be- one of the most beautiful places in the world, Do not be fooled exactly by what you see. Under the surface is corruption, immorality, greed, all of that. But most importantly, underneath all of that, that's just an expression. Sin is just an expression. Underneath all of that is loneliness. That's why I love being in uh, bars, coffee shops, restaurants, talking to people. It's just loneliness. They don't have that peace. They don't have it. 
That's why he can say the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace, shalom, what we were created for. Okay, just a quick word about experience. What does experience, what role does that play? Does the Holy Spirit magically solve all of our problems? I don't know about you, but he didn't solve any of mine. He guided me through them. I'll tell you that. So the cage door opens, and I take this step. And the arm starts to wake up. And initially, there's pain as I become aware of who I am. That's hard. As I become aware of the need that, yeah, God really did need to forgive me. He really did. I'm that kind of guy. And you are too. But then as I take these steps more by one by one, then each experience, he began to ask questions in the middle of the experience. Do you really trust me? Do you really believe? And there's a few times I was really tempted to say no. You've heard this story. I was with Judy when her heart stopped. I was holding her, my first wife. And that's the immediate question that floated to the surface. Do I really trust the Lord? And I wept. Yeah, I wept because I was missing my wife, but I also wept because the answer was yes, I do. I do. And every step on this journey that I've been through, every time I go through something like that and the question pops up, do you really trust me? And it gets easier and easier every year of every decade. Yes, I do. I don't know what you're doing. Don't confuse acceptance with understanding. I don't often know what he's doing, but I trust him. And when I look back down the road, I see his handiwork. So now, 40 years later, four decades later, I'm looking at a lot of experiences. And so I'm no longer surprised when I turn this way and there's another experience. There's no shortcut to strengthening your faith. Nor is there a shortcut to helping you come to grips with the fact that your faith is real. There's no shortcut. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Thank you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. There's no shortcut. But you're not alone. That's what Jesus said. You will never, ever be alone again. Every step, you have the Holy Spirit with you, holding your hand, walking you through experience by experience. And if you're willing to be patient, that joy comes. That shalom comes. It doesn't come like that. It comes over time. Those of you that are older in the Lord know what I'm talking about. It comes over time. So my advice to the young people, I told these young students at Cambridge, just put one foot in front of the other. That's all you got to do. Just one. Just one foot in front of the other. Don't even worry about tomorrow. Jesus has enough troubles of his own. Take care of today. One foot. And learn to trust the Lord. That's what life outside the cage is like. Father, thank you for, well, so many things. How could we possibly thank you for all the things that we know to be true? Your deep love. Your willingness not to leave us alone ever. In fact, your willingness to never forget us and never give up on us. Your willingness to just keep tapping us on the shoulder 
keep walking with us. Your willingness to send us a spirit, another advocate to be with us, to teach us the things of your son Jesus so that he could be present with us. Your willingness to lift the punishment so that we are no longer under condemnation. You have truly given us a life of freedom and grace. We thank you for that. And thank you, Lord, for loving us in spite of our sinfulness. If we're truthful, we do sin against you regularly, and you love us anyway. And we are thankful for that. Thank you for being the wonderful, true, living God that you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.